into the summer months in Phoenix, Arizona. And what that means is it's about to get hot, all right? If you moved here in October and December and you're like, everybody should live in Phoenix. Like, it is an amazing place. Everybody should live here. But you're just like, man, the weather is so fantastic here. And maybe you moved here from like Washington or Minnesota. And uh, so you kind of think that. And you, and, and you, But you didn't Google the summers in Phoenix before you came. I hate to break it to you, but it's about to get hot. And if you're not uh, familiar, if you don't really explore the whole state of Arizona, what you might think, a misconception that you might have about Arizona is that it must be the hottest state in our country. Like 115, 120 degrees in the summer, like this must be the hottest state in our country, unless you looked it up. And you would know that the state of Arizona doesn't crack the top 10 of hottest places to live in our country. Did you know why? It's not just the desert of Phoenix that we have in Arizona. We have the mountains of Flagstaff, praise Jesus. Amen, hallelujah, right? Just drive two hours north and it gets a lot cooler because the elevation gets a lot higher and you have pine trees and mountains and that's part of Arizona too. And so we don't even crack the top 10 of hottest states. And yet, uh, just like you, I have visitors who come in and they, they see me in Arizona and sometimes they come in the summer and they're supposed to be my friends. And yet they come to my state and they say things like, Tim, how do you live here? I mean, it's so hot here. And I'm like, have you ever heard of air conditioning? Like, have you ever heard of swimming pools? Like we have those things and we use them and that's how we live here. But what's ironic for me specifically is I grew up in Texas, and I got Texas friends saying that kind of thing to me. Did you know that the hottest state in the country is Texas? So take that, Texas, but go Mavericks. Sorry. I just want a lot of you and just hurt a lot of you at the same time. (laughs) Simultaneously, I hear some booze coming over there. Okay, let's keep it clean, guys. All right. Um. But that's a misconception about the state of Arizona. Here's the reality. We have lots of misconceptions in our world, but not just with our world, with our faith. That there's many misconceptions about what Jesus is about or like. A political party may may kind of capture Jesus and use them for their own good, and, and they have misconceptions and perpetuate misconceptions about Jesus or our faith or the Bible. Different groups of people, different churches throughout generations have done this, and we have misconceptions around our faith. And if you're anything like me, a skeptic or a cynic like me, what I needed when I came to Christ was not just... Hey, Jesus Christ, you know what he did? He came down from heaven. He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died the death that you deserved. He rose again in victory. And now you can know him and have eternal life. That did not change my life. I needed more. I needed somebody to come along and a church to come along and and tell me, hey, Tim, do you know what this isn't? This isn't about what you do. This isn't about your merit. This isn't about uh, religion. This isn't about those things. I needed to clear up some misconceptions that I had. It is about what Jesus has done. And in fact, before we ever get to what you do, Tim, it's about what Jesus has already done on your behalf. 
And as those misconceptions of the faith, for me, began to be unwound, it started to clear up this beauty of the reality of the gospel of grace. And that's what transformed my life. That's what made me a pastor. That's why we started Phoenix Bible Church because I started to meet other people and they had their own misconceptions about faith and Jesus in the Bible. And I wanna desperately, hey, let's clear up those misconceptions. Like you believe that about Jesus or you don't believe this about Jesus? Well, good, I don't either. That's a misconception. Let's take you to God's word. Let's talk about who Jesus really is, what he has done for you. And it's not these things, it's this thing. And I believe one of the greatest misconceptions revolving around our faith is this idea of giving and money. In fact, I think if we took a poll of people out there, but not just people out there, but people in this room, hey, hey, what has kept you from the church at time? What, what has kept you from involving yourself in a community of faith at, at times? What has had you skeptical of Christians and maybe Christ himself at times? One of the top things would be money and giving and the way the church has treated that. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're not just going to talk about the pros of giving. We're gonna clear up some misconceptions about money and giving surrounding God's word and surrounding Jesus. And so we're gonna break down what I believe are three big misconceptions. If you take notes, I'm gonna give them to you in a moment. Uh, but if you're new, this is part of a series that we are doing entitled Imperfect People Moved by the Perfect Love of Jesus. You see, we've been talking about these seven marks of a disciple meaning seven things that, that we want for every single person in this room, every single person watching online. We want for our church collectively to have these things like a gospel identity, like a biblical framework, like a spirit reliance. You can go watch those sermons online if you miss those. But today we're talking about that we wanna be marked by a generous stewardship, a generous stewardship. And here's what we mean by that. You can write this down if you take notes. We desire that you would utilize the resources God has given you to give consistently, compassionately, and sacrificially. We desire as a church, collectively, individually, that you would utilize the resources God has given you to give consistently, compassionately, and sacrificially. So we're gonna look at God's word and we're gonna break this down together, look at some of these misconceptions. We're gonna be in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. If you have a Bible, you can head there in your New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And you can also follow along on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through nine. It says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we're talking about generous stewardship. I wanna clear up three big misconceptions. Here's the first one. Stewardship, stewardship isn't about guilt, but grace. Stewardship isn't about guilt, but grace. I imagine many of you, whether you grew up in the church or this is your first Sunday, when you hear about money, the church starts to touch your wallet. There's some guilt associated with that. For me, that was the case. I grew up in the church. I grew up in, in East Texas. And if you can kind of picture it, we had a lot of country people kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And, and we would do an offering uh, in the middle of the service and we would pass a plate. And for whatever reason, whatever stereotype uh, that you have about Texans, like we didn't have everybody in our church like this, but the people who would take the offering all had a big belt buckle. They were all like Texan, right? They like herded cows during the week and were all like these tough, gruff men. And I remember as a little kid, I would just be sitting in the pew and the time would come for the offering and all these ushers would come forward to take the offering. And I would just look down the aisle and there'd just be this big, gruff men that bell and hay all week, passing the plate. And I remember just feeling guilty, like what are they gonna do to me if I don't give in this moment? And I was like six years old, right? And I just made this up in my head. I think they were nice men with big, big, big belt buckles, right? And I would imagine for a lot of you, if you've just been scrolling through channels late at night and saw a, tele a televangelist, or maybe you went to a church that seemed to be all about money and building their brand, whatever the case is for you, you might have some guilt associated with money, giving, and stewardship. But if you paid attention to what we just read, it seems to be the exact opposite of guilt. Look at it with me. As we look at the text, we see words like overflowing in a wealth of generosity. We see giving beyond their means. We see verse four, they were begging to give. Twice, Paul calls uh, giving an act of grace. Verse one, he frames it all up with they've received God's grace. He talks about verse four, the favor of giving. He even says that these people were begging to give. At that point, just to be honest with you, Paul lost me. It's like, okay, Paul, calm down. They were begging to give. Like, really? And, and this is, Paul is just talking about the, the basics of this example of the Macedonians, that they were a radically generous people. And it was even begging to give because of the radical grace of God. If you notice, the grace that they had first received, but also the grace that they had extended, the act of grace, it was as they had received God's grace, like that was a good thing, overflowing in them. That was a joyful thing. But it was also as they gave away, that was God's grace too. And that was their source of joy too. Nowhere in there is this idea of compulsion of guilt. Now, what's interesting is the example Paul uses of the Macedonians just in general. You see, Paul is talking to the, the church in Corinth. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, if you've read 1 Corinthians at all, you know it's a little bit like an episode of TMZ or Jerry Springer, whatever your flavor is. 
It's people who are just trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing and, and somebody's having sex with their stepmom and yeah, it's in the Bible, go read it, people. Uh, and they're getting drunk off communion wine and, and they're just kind of trying to keep the basics together and yet Paul is challenging them on their generosity. It almost seems like, no, Paul, like, let's wait. Let's, let's wait till they just start doing marriage right. Let's wait till they can take communion without getting plastered. And Paul seemed to think, no, 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 a big part of foundation of faith is generosity, no matter where you are on the spectrum. And he gives this example of the Macedonians, who we see in books like Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians, and he talks about, it's really strange, he talks about them being radically generous, yet extremely poor. Did you catch that? Here's one that's important. I think many of us, you, you have them in your mind right now. You think of generous people, who do you think of? Rich people, right? They have an abundance, and so they give excess off that abundance. And so Paul is telling these Corinthians, who most likely don't have an abundance, materially or spiritually, and he's saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be generous. You just start giving. You've received grace. You don't think you have anything? You've received the grace of God. He gave himself. You have everything, and so you give out of that. And guess what? The grace doesn't start, stop flowing when you get it. It keeps going, and not just to other people, but also in you. And this is what it looks like to be generous. And I think some of us, we, we may push back, and we, we may look at examples like this, and they're begging to give and giving generously, and yet they're poor. And we may think, well, Tim, that was different back in that day. Like, Paul could give this example because in that day, they didn't really have anything to give, not like we do. I mean, they probably had like some, what, like rocks and sand and like a hut, I mean, these Bible times, like that's what they gave, like big deal. Like, I got a mortgage, Tim. Like, I got my, my investments, my stocks. I got Bitcoin. They didn't have that back in that day. Here's what you need to know. As you read the Gospels even, Jesus talks about money. Do you know why? Because they had money. They had taxes that they paid off that money. You have corrupt tax collectors like Zacchaeus and other people who even followed Jesus who were corrupt. Do you know why they were corrupt? Because there was money to be had. There was things that they could accumulate. And so as he talks about generous people, they were giving real money and real possessions, right? And in some ways, they had it harder than we do. You see, today we got banks and ATMs and we can deposit a check on our phone. We have social services for people who, who don't have money that they did not have, and yet they were generous, so the question we have to be asking is, how? How are they generous? And Paul says, it's all wrapped in grace. It's all wrapped in grace. Just look at verse nine with me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, it's no mistake, Jesus is the example of generosity because that's what the Macedonians had experienced was Jesus. That's what the Corinthians, they didn't have a lot else. They didn't know how to do marriage or communion, but they had received Jesus. The, the God in heaven, 
the one who hung the stars in the sky, the one who put the the planets in motion, the one who's sustaining your very breath right now. Do you know what he gave? Himself. He was rich in glory in heaven, seated on a throne. And it wasn't just that he came to earth and rolled in and and everybody uh, celebrated him and he was victorious and and he was born in a palace. No, no, he came all the way down to a barn and a stable, lived an inconspicuous life for 30 years as a carpenter. Nobody even knew about him. He came from a town called Nazareth, where scripture literally says, what good can come from Nazareth? God, majestic, glorious, full of power, came all the way down. He who was rich became poor, so that you might become rich in him. Amen. If that doesn't get you excited, I can't help you. Right, that's the gospel of grace. That's what the Macedonians had experienced. That's what the Corinthians had experienced. And, and that receiving of that gift was all they needed to know to then be generous themselves. Because that's the foundation. Nowhere in there do you see guilt. It's all grace. So my question for you is, do you see giving that way? You see, the reality, if you're like me, again, we may need to unwind some of our misconceptions about guilt and giving, and money. And some of you right now, I can see it on your face. You're like, yeah, but you, when's the, are we taking a second offering, Tim? Is this really why you're doing this? No, that's your guilt. Let's unwind that. We're not taking a second offering. We already did it. It's all about grace. That you'd be so in awe, so wonder at what God has given you, that you'd begin to give, and you would get to experience the grace of giving as well. That's what it's about. Here's our second misconception. It's that stewardship isn't anti-wealth or wisdom. Stewardship isn't anti-wealth or wisdom. Uh, Maybe some of you, as you think about uh, giving, and and maybe you do think like, hey, the whole point of this sermon is to give everything we have away. Like, I I guess I should get rid of my Airbnb, even though we just renovated it. I guess, you know, like, uh, I should have less money. And that homeless guy I saw this morning, like, like I'm going to go eat lunch. He probably didn't have anything to eat. Like, oh, like, and, and just, you start to think, like, maybe I shouldn't have anything. And you need to know that that's not right either. And that's not biblical. That as we look at the book of Proverbs, just case in point, one book of our Bible, it has lots of things to say about building wealth and doing that with wisdom as a good and right and moral thing to do. I'm just going to give you three examples. Proverbs chapter 14 says it this way. The crown of the wise is their wealth. He connects wisdom and wealth together. Proverbs 21 says this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, Proverbs 13, that there's so much wealth and so much wisdom with that wealth. It's not just the kids that get to experience that. It's when they have kids. There's so much wealth and wisdom channeling through their family, and the Proverbs celebrates that. You see, it's good to work hard. It's good to plan. It's good to save. It's good to build wealth. It's a good, right thing to do. 
In fact, scripture will go so far as to say, if you don't do those things, if you're flippant or careless with money, that that's a bad thing, that's a wrong thing. We see in Proverbs all over the place, uh, the, the author condemning the sluggard. We see in the New Testament that if you're a husband, father, and you don't provide for your family, you're worse than a non-believer. So the Bible isn't, the gospel isn't anti-wealth, anti-wisdom. These are good things to do. In fact, you need to be intentional with these things. Uh, They won't just happen. Uh, You won't just be able to be wise with your finances because you come to church every once in a while and and you pray. You're going to have to walk by the Spirit in wisdom from His Word in order to build wealth the way the Bible talks about. We we see it uh, in places, and I think this might be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Proverbs chapter 23, when talking about money, this is what happens if you're not wise with your money. It says, when your eyes light on it, your money, your possessions, your resources, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle toward heaven. How many of you know, it's not just the Bible teaching this to you, but our culture teaches this to you every day. What happens when you get paid on the 15th and it's the 19th and you think, where'd all my money go? Where did it go? It sprouted wings and flew away. What happens, you know, we're like in uh, May and you got gift cards in December. You're like, I got a lot of gift cards from grandma. I got a lot of gift cards from my aunt. What do I spend those on? I don't have any evidence to show for that. How many of you, you've done a garage sale and you put out on your curb all your regrets in life? (laughs) All your possessions where you're just like, Man, it sprouted wings. It wasn't worth what I thought it was. Because you have to be intentional. Stewardship isn't anti-wealth or wisdom. A pastor friend of mine says it this way. I think it encompasses what the Bible teaches about wealth in general. He says you want to give first, save second, and live on the rest. I think if you look at Proverbs, if you look at the generosity passages, I think you could combine all those and and succinctly say, give first, save second, live on the rest. That we give first. You see in the Old Testament, like a tithe, you give your, your first fruits. You know why? Because it's about priority. It's about worship. It's about giving your first and your best to God. And when you give, that is an act of worship unto God. So giving first teaches you about worship. And then when you save second, as you put things away, as you, you don't spend money here, as you, as you tone down the Amazon Prime shopping, anybody? As you start to save, that teaches you discipline. And as you start to, to live on the rest, that teaches you about contentment in life. I, I don't need every advertisement. I, I don't need every uh, Instagram ad and what they throw, about, throw at me. Like, I, I, don't, I, I just need enough to get by. So this teaches us about God. Stewardship isn't anti-wealth or wisdom, even if we've kind of heard that or or not heard that, but we implied that or inferred that. So we need to keep that in mind as we think about giving, that, that money, if you think about it, it can do a lot of good. Money can build churches. Money can build schools. Money can build technology that can help save lives. Are are you thankful for money? It's okay to raise your hand in church. We can be thankful. 
First Timothy 6, what's the root of all evil? The love of money. That money can do some, some great things. The problem isn't that you have money, that you have a 401k, that you have a career, that you have an Airbnb. The, the problem is not that you have these things. Here's the problem, is when they have you. That's the problem. Stewardship isn't anti-wealth or wisdom. That, that money and stewardship overall can be like water. That it can be like a tsunami. If you're reckless with it, I mean, it can hurt people in your life. If you're not intentional with it, it can hurt your marriage. Listen, as a pastor, I talk to a lot of couples, and some of them are struggling with sexual sin. But some of them are just struggling with the way they handle money, the way they react to the conversations they have about money and who spends what in separate accounts that they don't talk about. It can destroy you. It's like a tsunami. How many of you, you took a loan from your uncle or your parents and there's just some slight awkwardness now or you don't even talk to that person anymore. Money can be like water, like a tsunami if you're reckless with it. But it can also be like a rancid pond if you just hoard it and count every penny. And some of you are like this, you love spreadsheets and I don't understand you, let's get coffee, right? Because you can help me. But some of you go over the top and you're just counting every penny. We talk about giving for the Easter offering or somebody else says they have a need or a homeless person is on the, the street corner and you roll up your window. Come on, people, you know you do it. And you're just like hoarding everything you have and you believe the lie. If I, if I just get a little bit more, then it will be enough, but it's never enough. And you're like a rancid pond. And money can be like that as well. See, money, biblically, it's not like either one of those examples. It's like a river. It flows to you, but also through you as you give generously. That's the whole point. You give first, you save second, you live on the rest. You, you get the blessing of money in your life, but you also give the blessing of money in your life. And that's when you begin to understand the blessing, when you give it away. That's when you begin to really receive the grace is when you give the gift of grace. That's the whole point. And so we have to unwind some of our misconceptions. Maybe you have some of those. Here's the, the third misconception that I think we often have around money and stewardship. Stewardship isn't separate from faith, but essential to faith. Uh, look at verse seven with me. Paul says, but as you excel in everything, remember who he's talking to, the Corinthian believers, young believers, just tr trying to figure out how to fight sin, how to love their neighbor, how to not have sex with their stepmom. That's who he's talking to, Okay. And he says, as you excel in everything, fighting sin, reading God's word, prayer, loving one another, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, giving. Verse eight, he goes further and says, it's proof that your love is actually genuine. Paul says, to grow in Christ is to be generous that you can't disconnect those two things. And yet how many times in the Christian life, in our communities, in the church as a whole, do we disconnect these things? And this is partly my fault, okay? So I'm just gonna, pastoral confession, I apologize, I am sorry. Because I contribute to this. Do you know what I do? And you know what we do as churches and pastors? Is we tell you how to grow in everything. 
We tell you and we help you grow in your prayer life. We, we give you a, a prayer uh, study guide and we say, hey, pray prayers like this and let's fast and pray together. You know what fasting is? It's not just removing something from your life. It's replacing it with prayer in your life. And we'll equip you around prayer. We'll equip you around the Bible. And we got study guides for that. And we have studies for that and classes for that. And we have equip nights where we'll talk about how do you engage culture in 2022 with God's word? Like, what does that look look like. And we'll equip you how to love your spouse and be faithful to your spouse. We'll equip you and set up even service events for you to go love your neighbor because the Bible calls you to do that. And yet about giving and money, stay silent about that. I'm just going to not talk about that as your pastor and hope that you like figure it out. Paul says, that's off. Just like everything else, prayer, scripture reading, evangelism, loving your wife, you need to grow in giving. And yet here's what we do in the church. We never teach you what that looks like because we're too afraid to talk about it. Listen, y'all are a little scary, but that shouldn't keep me from talking about giving, amen? I'm gonna keep talking about it even if you don't say amen. But I gotta talk about this because I'm your pastor, your shepherd, and churches and pastors everywhere. What, what Paul is saying is, hey, this is all wrapped up into one. And you see that as you look at the Bible. What's the defining verse of all of the Bible? If you didn't know anything else in the Bible, uh, but you just watched Tim Tebow play football, what would you know? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. It's literally like the verse that describes our faith. God gave. And yet, it's what we understand the least amount about. It's what we are the most awkward about. And church, can I, can I just tell you, we need to lean into that more. We need to talk about giving. We need to talk about wealth. We need to talk about what the Bible says about money. Jesus talked about this. We need to talk about it, and you need to talk about it. So I know some of you, like, this is awkward, but some of you, this is awkward, like whenever you talk about money with your wife, it's just like you shut down. You turn on the basketball game. You find any, turn up the music. You're just like, I don't want to talk about this. Some of you, when you think about it in your own life, you're just like, man, yeah, I want to think about praying. I want to think about the spiritual disciplines. I want to think about the grace of God in my life, but I don't want to talk about my wallet. Like some of you, man, you'll dedicate your baby on stage but your wallet is hidden in your closet spiritually. You never let that thing be seen. So in community group, don't talk about it. Marriage, roommates, this, this is my thing. The scripture says this is God's thing. How are you exalting him with it? How are you glorifying him with it? How is it teaching you more and more about how he gave to you? And so we need to talk about this. We need to practice this. And yet I know for some of us, again, these misconceptions, we kind of think, well, when I get, Tim, when, when I get more, then I'll give. Whatever stage and whatever part of the spectrum you're on, maybe some of you are waiting for a promotion, and then you'll give. Maybe some of you are waiting for uh, the next house, and we want to accomplish this first, and then we're going to give some money. Tim, we're going to do that. And here's what we just heard Paul tell us is that the way you become generous and the way you experience the grace of generosity is you have to experience the act of grace. 
Like twice he says that. You have to act on it. Wherever you are, these were young believers, probably didn't have much spiritually, probably didn't have much materialistically. Same thing with the Macedonians. How did they grow in this part of their faith, this essential part of their faith? They took a step. And when they took that step and they realized, I can trust God with my baby, I can also trust God with my wallet. He's taking care of me. He's not multiplying your bank account sevenfold, okay? Let's just squash that right now. But he's gonna take care of you. And you do that, and God takes care of you. And then you get to see the impact of things like giving $40,000 to kids who have special needs in Uganda who don't have a home or a bed. And you get to see a video of one of those kids, and you've seen this video, getting a bed. And none of us have dry eyes. And you know how you get to experience that grace? Because you give, right? That's how it works. Because you do things like we send out missionaries like Jeff and Chloe, Chloe, a college student who came to Phoenix Bible Church her first Sunday and after four years never left. And you saw her singing up on a stage and we get to not just say goodbye to Chloe, but as a church, we get to give her money to go be a missionary. And as a church, we get to see her come back and sing songs because we're gonna make you do that, Chloe and share about what God's doing in another part of the world that you may never go to, and you get the joy and the grace of giving. See, the only way to unwind your misconceptions, it's all about guilt, the church just wants my money. The only way you can unwind your misconceptions is to just start giving and see God's faithfulness and see God's impact, not just around your life, but through your life. This is what we had to learn as a church. You see, some of you just showed up to our church and you're like, man, they got a staff, they got two services. Like a lot of things are going on, people getting baptized. I love this place. And you need to know, it wasn't always like that. That, that, that seven years ago, I pulled up to church and there weren't A-frame signs out. Like the, the parking lot gates were still locked and I had to come and unlock them. And I had to stay afterwards and lock them back. Right? Because we didn't have a staff, because we couldn't afford those kinds of things. And I had to look at our budget and weep, not tears of joy, every single year. Right? And I was stressed about money. Maybe some of you are stressed about money. You know what we did the first Easter of our church? The, the day when the most people are going to be in the room all year. The day where we have the potential for the most giving to happen. And I just felt like God, as I was stressed about money, our first Easter as a church, I felt like God was saying, you know what? You need to give all the money away. So we did that. Every cent that came in that day, online, in person, we gave away to another organization in our city. It was like $5,000 and it, it added to my stress. Because <laughs> I was like, well, what is that gonna do? What could we have done with $5,000? And we just said, hey, we wanna, we wanna model this as a church. And even if money that was something that was, that, that stressed us out, you know what the best thing we could do is give it away, not hoard it. And I can tell you like seven Easter's later in Uganda and $40,000, it still makes me a bit nervous, but it's the one thing I love about our church. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for anything. By God's grace, 80 years in, we're still gonna be giving away the Easter offering. And I pray it grows. And I pray it makes me more nervous about making budget, right? Because that's the heart of God. And so would you just, would you take that step? 
Would you start giving so you can experience God's grace? If you're not giving anything, then give something. If you're giving something, give frequently. If you're giving frequently, what would it look like to be generous? What would it look like to shuffle things around where you and your wife or you and your kids or you and your roommates just said, hey, we're gonna give uncomfortably. We're gonna give uncomfortably to this thing, to Phoenix Bible Church, to whatever it is, and we're just gonna see, we're gonna trust God and experience his grace. I promise you he's faithful. I promise you there's joy there. There's his faithfulness there. More of it as you give. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you that you're a father and we're your kids, that you want good things for us. You want more of your grace in our lives. And just one of the ways we get that is through generosity. As you gave us everything, God, we give out of that. We celebrate a God who has given to us and is faithful to us. God, help us to take a step. God, I pray for these men and women, some of them, have some, some just deep hurt from giving and money in the church. Uh, God, I just pray that you would take today and, and by your spirit, you would unwind some of that and you would help them to see what your true intent for giving and money really is. And that would give them joy and that would give them blessing in their lives, in their relationship with you. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.